Uh, well, this semester in TEC, Theological Equipping Class, we've been tracing biblical themes, right? If you've been here uh, at any point over the last, what is it's, uh, it's April now, so four months, uh, each uh, Theological Equipping Class, we take a theme, which is kind of like a, think of it like a storyline, and trace it throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, and today, uh, the focus is tracing the theme of division and unity across the pages of the Bible. And to set the stage for this theme, I actually want to do something a little different. I want to start by identifying where we, the church today, stand in the storyline of this theme. I want to identify, I want to, I want to locate us today. Where does the church, Christ people today, where do we stand uh, in this theme as it's played out across all of history. Uh, and I think the answer to that comes in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. So this is a lengthy passage. The, it's the end of Ephesians 2 and, and the first half of Ephesians 3. I'm going to read it for us, though, because I think this is really, really significant to identify where we today stand uh, in this storyline. Here's what Paul writes. He says, In him, in Christ... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery he's talking about? He answers in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's two things I want you to notice in that passage. I've underlined each of them. The first is that Paul's talking about the mystery of the gospel here, and he tells us what it is. Part of the mystery, part of what's amazing about it, is this union of Jew and Gentile in Christ. These two people who do not belong together are one, partakers of the same body, partakers, or members of the same church in Christ. You see that in verse 6. And the second thing I want you to notice is that that unity, that church that is created by the gospel, results in angels and demons. That's the language we talked about this last Sunday uh, of rulers and authorities. That's angels and demons. That results in them being amazed at the wisdom of God. So they, there's something about the unity that happens in the church that the spiritual powers, angels and demons, look at and they say, wow, God 
is wise. He is wise. They're amazed at him. And the question I want in your mind as we kind of begin to unpack this theme is what are they so amazed at? What, what is the nature of the unity? Why is it so incredible that angels and demons, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are looking at the church and they're praising God for his wisdom? Why is that so stunning? And the answer we'll find uh, as we unpack this theme throughout the Bible, this theme of division and unity. Now, I'll just acknowledge here at the beginning also, uh, there's a a lot of talk today about diversity. We're going to address diversity because obviously it's wrapped up in division and unity in in some ways. Uh, And, uh, yeah, it's connected to this theme. Uh, I don't intend to, like, address all the ideas, all the conversations out there, but I do think, uh, hopefully, uh, what we see here uh, about how diversity fits in God's redemptive plan will help us think through biblically uh, a lot of those uh, ideas that we might find out in the world. If you have questions, as always, about anything we talk about, shoot me an email, happy to get coffee or lunch, uh, and, and talk about these things. So, uh, normally, when we trace a biblical theme, we start at the beginning in Genesis. Today, we're actually going to go before that. We're going to start before the beginning because I think that the beginning of this theme of division and unity begins with the tri-unity of the God that we worship. So, uh, there is one God. There is one God. I hope you agree with that. This God has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear about this. There is no division in God, but there is diversity. There is, I don't know if difference is quite the right word, there's distinction. There's there's diversity within God himself. You see that in the little diagram here, which is pretty much the only visual representation of the Trinity that is not purely heretical. Um, The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. There's this this kind of tri-unity, this diversity, this diversity and unity in the being of God itself. God himself is triune. It's summarized in the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Neither confusing the persons, that would be to say that there's no diversity, they're, they're all the same, that's wrong. Nor dividing the essence, which would be to say that there's three gods, that's also wrong. There's one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. A great biblical example of this, Matthew 28, Jesus, the Great Commission, says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's interesting. There's one name, it's the name, but it's the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a perfectly united diversity. Uh, Why do I start with this? Why do I start uh, 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 teaching on division and unity with the Trinity, other than, you know, obviously I'm just trying to make your head explode? Uh, Because... What we're going to see as we trace this theme is that the tri-unity of God is reflected in the world he makes and in the church he redeems. So in both the church and in the world, there is a diverse unity that in some regard reflects the diverse unity present in the triune God. 
We worship a God who is triune, and his triunity is stamped across his works. And John 17 is, I think, a great illustration of this. So Jesus is, is praying. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me. Okay, there's that difference, distinction, and unity. That they, the church, may be one, even as we are one. So the church is reflecting God's triunity. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The unity of God we're going to talk about, sorry, the the unity and and diversity and division we're going to talk about today goes back to the triunity of God himself. So with that, we can now begin at the actual beginning in creation. We were going to see that creation and creatures reflect this united diversity that we've already identified in the person of God. God is triune. His works reflect his triune nature. So when God creates, he makes a diverse, colorful, manifold world that is completely ordered. I've tried to illustrate this for you in uh, the chart here. I'm not going to, you know, walk through every little bit of it here, but uh, each day of creation, there's this this kind of complementarity. There's this uh, A and B. There's this point-counterpoint. There's this uh, unity and yet distinction. Uh, so there's the dry land and the waters. There's the moon and the sun. There's the sea creatures according to their kinds, the land animals according to their kinds. There's, they're all one. They're all united in different ways, but they are all different. The creation itself, itself is reflecting this triunity, this, this united diversity. They all exist in perfect harmony, even though they are all different. That's true of God's creation in general, and it is especially true of the crown of God's creation, which is humankind. So, in Genesis 2, we get kind of this zoomed-in picture of God making humanity. He made Adam, the man, first. And for the first time ever in all of history, because there's not much history at this point, God says... This is not good. This is not good. He looks, he makes the land animals, he makes the waters above, the waters below, he makes the sun and the moon, and it's all good. And then he makes man, Adam, and he says, this is not good. And the reason for that is everything God has made has this point-counterpoint, this, this different, these, this unity and yet difference, these two things that go together and yet are not the same. And he makes man, and he's like, this is not good. Something is, we're missing something here. There's this similarity and dissimilarity in everything, but not with man. He alone, uh, by himself alone, is is not good. He needs, uh, in the words of Genesis 2, a helper fit for him. He needs this similar yet different counterpart. This is where uh, just complementarians, like our church, this is where we get the language of complementarity because uh, man and woman complete each other. They complement each other. That's where we get our title because we recognize there's a, a difference uh, and yet a similarity between male and female. They, they, they fit together, and, but they are not the same. 
So together, both male and female, in the words of Genesis 1, going back to Genesis 1 here, are made in God's image. I think this passage is so crucial in seeing this kind of diverse unity in humanity, male and female. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, interesting, after our likeness, there's a plural there, so God created man in his own image, singular. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see that kind of the, the switch between the plural and the singular back and forth there? That, he's saying very clearly that, that part of the image of God, part of what it means to, to reflect God's nature and character as humanity is this similarity yet dissimilarity, this unity and diversity, this differentiation between male and female that are also united and, and can be called humankind together. And that's the reason that they fit. And so, because of this fittedness, they have, uh, they're commanded in Genesis 2 to relate to each other in unique ways. So the husband, Adam, is called to a, a position of headship, to use the biblical language, of, of leadership. Uh, and Eve, the wife, is called to a position of, of joyful and glad submission as the helpmate, to use the language of Genesis 2. There's this kind of relationship uh, that is reflected in, sorry, the, the roles, the relationship reflects the nature of the diversity in God's creation. I'm tempted to say a lot more about that now, but uh, in a couple weeks I'll have a theological equipping on authority and submission, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but before we get to where things go wrong, I just want to point out one other thing here. The, the most important thing about this unity and harmony that is inherent in God's original creation is that all of creation is united with its creator. So the reason male and female can exist in this beautiful complementarity, this beautiful relationship where they are different and yet similar and uh, it, is, it is ultimately leads to flourishing and fulfillment uh, is because they are united with their God. The reason that these diverse animals around the world, although they're different and yet similar, are in harmony with one another is because they're in harmony with their Creator. It's the reason everything works. It's very much like uh, if, I think I've used this illustration before, uh, but if I get dressed in the morning and I put the top button in the right hole, everything will fall into place, right? But if I put the top button in the wrong hole, guys, you know what I'm talking about? Everything just, there's nothing I can do to fix that, right? It's only going to be messed up no matter what I try to do. Having the relationship with God, the creator, as the first thing first, put at the top button, the top hole, everything falls into place. But what happens next is uh, to completely minimize the fall of humankind is putting the top button in the wrong hole. Right? Next, what we see uh, is that this difference, this diversity in creation, manifests something that it does not manifest in God. It creates division. So when humanity falls, this whole ordered creation falls with it. The earth rebels against Adam. That's Genesis 3. This is God's curse to Adam. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So the earth is rebelling, and then Adam and Eve are rebelling against each other. So after the fall, God tells Eve, he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So man and woman are supposed to exist in this relationship of, of, of humble, sacrificial leadership and joyful, glad uh, help and submission. And those two are both uh, inverted in really unhealthy ways. So Eve is supposed to joyfully submit to Adam. Now she, her desire is contrary to her husband. She bucks his leadership. She doesn't want uh, him to be the leader in the relationship. And Adam, who's supposed to lead Eve with love and with joy and tenderness, rules over her. He's dominating. He's even abusive in his leadership. So this relationship that was supposed to be beautiful and perfect, this complementarity is just Everything is messed up. Everything is destroyed, and they become, it becomes a grounds for further division. The differences which God created create, create this division. So that's what happens when everything rebelled against God. And that multiplies uh, um, across the ages, right? So it started with Adam and Eve, but as the further we get in the Old Testament, we see things get worse and worse and worse, and the next step for that is division among the nations, uh, now, before we dive in, we're going to be looking at Babel and the Table of Nations here. Let me just do a brief uh, excursus uh, on ethnicity, race, and the nations or, or nationality. So, uh, this is helpful to understand some of the biblical language that I think will be very helpful in thinking through uh, some of the discussions around these things in our world today. So, in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for nations uh, which usually refers to nations that are not Israel. Sometimes, like once or twice, it's referred to, it refers to Israel. But the vast majority of the time, it's talking about pagan nations of the earth. That word is goyim. Uh, and when the Old Testament was translated into Greek uh, before the first century, it's known as the Septuagint, uh, that Hebrew word, goyim, was translated into the Greek word ethnoi. Ethnoi. And that's important because the New Testament uses the word ethnoi or ethne or uh, ethnos quite a bit. Uh, and I think it's important we realize it has this, the New Testament writers had this Old Testament context. That, that ethnoi and goyim, uh, goyim the Hebrew, ethnoi the Greek, were related terms. That ethnoi was used to translate goyim, the, the people groups of the earth, the nations. You can probably tell uh, our word uh, ethnicity today comes from that Greek word ethnoi. Uh, which is often translated nations uh, in the New Testament. So uh, often times today, we use the words ethnicity and race interchangeably. Uh, we, we often will use them to mean the same thing. I don't think that is uh, a good idea. Uh, if you want a, a book that's very helpful to think through that, uh, that issue, that question, uh, it's in your notes at the end. Shai Lin, who you've heard me talk about as a wonderful Christian rapper, uh, wrote a book called The New Reformation, where he talks about the issues of ethnicity and race, and he's got a really good chapter in there talking about why the, the biblical language should be ethnicity, and it's not very helpful to use the language of race. Uh, basically, the, the main argument there is ethnicity is a biblical category. Ethnicity is a biblical category, but race is not. Race is differentiation simply on the basis of skin pigmentation, which is a, an extremely superficial differentiation. The Bible never differentiates people on the basis of mere skin color. It never says, there's these people with this skin color, these people with this skin color. That's what makes them different. Uh, it talks about people on the basis of ethnicity, which can manifest itself in various skin colors. But there's a lot more that goes into ethnicity than merely skin tone. 
Uh, that's why I think it's helpful for Christians to use the language of ethnicity. If you use the word race and you mean ethnicity, that's not the end of the world. Um, but I do think it's, it's helpful not to reflect the world's language on a hot-button issue. Uh, let's, let's stick to what we have clearly from the Scriptures and try to uh, reflect the language that we have there. Uh, but again, it's, it's not something I'm going to bind your conscience over. You must not say race. Um, so in the Old Testament... Ethnicity and uh, nation or nationality are pretty much interchangeable. A person's ethnicity is the nation to which they belong in the Old Testament. That is not the case. That is not our reality today in a globalized society, right? So we, we exist as conglomerate nation states that are filled with multiple people groups, multiple ethnicities in one nation because the, the way we use nation in our world today is, is not quite how it existed in the Old Testament. So, you know, United States of American is not an ethnicity, right? That's a nationality, uh, but it is not an ethnicity. So uh, what is an ethnicity? Uh, We could spend a lot of time talking about this. Uh, I don't want to belabor it too much. Uh, And part of the issue is there is some disagreement. A lot of the conversations about this come into uh, how we think about missions, so missiology. Missiologists will debate how many uh, ethnicities or people groups there are in the world. Uh, Just to give you a sense of the debate, the the range is somewhere between 10,000 and 24,000. So it's like, okay, that's a lot of that's a big range, right? So how, how specific can we be? It's, it's hard to say. But I'll just say this. It seems to be the case, biblically, that ethnicity involves a combination of factors, including shared language. Well, that's very clear. We'll see that in Babel in a second. Uh, shared history or traditions, a shared origin, and shared culture. So ethnicity will often reflect some amalgamation of those various things. It's still kind of vague, but I do think that gets us in the neighborhood of the Old Testament uh, description of nations, of nationality or ethnicity. Uh, But whatever conclusions we come to, we, we must also realize the New Testament has a category for ethnicity. It it recognizes this as something that exists. I have a few examples listed there in your notes. Uh, Jew, Greek, almost knocked over my podium. Jew, Greek, Scythian, Cretan, Parthian, Mede, Elamite, Arabian. Uh, most of these are from Acts 2, some from Colossians and Titus. Uh, these are just various ethnicities that the New Testament talks about and says these are some of the different people groups that exist in the world. Uh, that's not an exhaustive list from the New Testament, uh, but that just kind of gets our feet wet a little bit there. Uh, these are all people made in God's image, just like male and female, though made in God's image, yet different, have differences based on their ethnicity. Now, a question that will get us back to our theme. Where did the various ethnicities, the nations of the earth, come from? Where did they arise from? Well, that answer is clear. The answer is Genesis chapter 11. Uh, You may be familiar with the story. I'm going to read kind of a shortened version of it here, just the beginning and the end of the account Uh, of Babel. It says, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And then they, you see my little addendum there. They made the note, they made the tower and God responded by confusing their language. That's what happened. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this passage starts with a unity. It starts with a unity, but it's a godless unity. That right away should tell us that unity in itself is not always the ideal. Unity is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing, right? Because this is a godless unity they share. They're united in their rebellion against God. So God makes disunity. In response to what they're doing, trying to build this tower up to heaven, God makes a disunity. He divides them from each other. He creates division. They no longer speak the same language, and they spread across the earth, which is where the various nations, ethnicities of the world come from. Uh, But I do want to point out, Babel is not only about language. It's clearly about language, but it's not only about language. As I've already said, uh, language is a part of ethnicity. And what we're going to see in just a second when we get to Genesis 10 is that part of this dispersion is where the various nations come from. But before we get to Genesis 10, I want to just make one point that we're going to see again and again and again, which I think is really the main point of this whole teaching, the main point of division and unity, getting to what the wisdom of God that the angels and demons are amazed at, is that the division God makes here generates a diversity from which God will make a more beautiful unity. The division God himself makes here will create a diversity that in the end results in a more beautiful unity. To see that, let's get to Genesis chapter 10. We're actually going backwards here. So if you're familiar with Genesis 10, it's basically a list of the various nations of the earth. I've just picked a few summary verses here for you to kind of understand what's going on here. Let me read Genesis 10. It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So this is right after the flood. And then Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Okay. And then we get each one of the three sons, we, get, we hear what happens with them. So, verse 5. From these, which is Japheth's descendants, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. That's the language of Goyim, or in the New Testament, ethnoi. Verse 20. These are the sons of Ham, by their languages. Sorry, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the sons, the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is where the nations of the earth, the ethnicities, come from. But the really important thing to see is Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 are out of order. In your Bible, they are not chronological. They are switched. That should be obvious if if you're paying close attention, right? Because Genesis 10 talks about different languages, different nations. And then Genesis 11 starts with they have one language. So clearly they're out of order. But why? Why in the world? Some of you are like, this is bad. i got to, you know, rip that out, put it here. Someone messed with my Bible. That's not what happened. It's okay. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Don't rip it up. Why Why are Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 switched? Here... Here's the answer I'm I'm fairly convinced is correct. If these two were in chronological order, if Genesis 11 came first and then Genesis 10, 
the diverse ethnicities of the nation, the creation of ethnicity, would necessarily be placed in the context of judgment. Here's what I mean. Genesis 11 is bad. Genesis 11 is Babel, right? It is nations, or not nations, it is the people of the earth rebelling against God. And in response, God creates the various nations of the earth. By putting Genesis 10 first, we see that God actually has a good purpose in the various nations of the earth. It's not humanity did this evil thing and that's why ethnicity exists. That's technically true, but by switching them, God is showing us through his word that actually ethnicity, he has a higher, better plan that is more beautiful and more glorious than just, it's a sign of judgment. That it's a bad thing that that peoples, various peoples of the earth exist. God is saying, actually, I have something wonderful here. So Babel is the, the earthly origin of ethnicity. We can say that. Babel is the earthly origin. But God does not want us to think that ethnicities exist simply because of human sin. Because he's going to take this division and make it into a more beautiful, diverse unity. So you can think of this like Genesis chapter 50, right? Where Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is doing this again and again and again, and the various nations of the earth are no different. What man meant for evil in Babel, God is going to work for a beautiful, glorious good. So that is the table of nations. From here, the Old Testament history will continue to trace this division. There's there's not much unity in the Old Testament. But let me just highlight one story here that, that kind of displays both the unity and the division, the disunity that's going on throughout the Old Testament that gets us to one of the main points I think we need to see. That's 1 Kings chapter 18. So this is a famous passage where Elijah, Elijah, he squares off against the prophets of Baal, and it says this. So Elijah came near to all the people of Israel, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. And then you see my little note there. Elijah does some really cool stuff where he calls down fire from heaven. It's awesome. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The reason I include this is it shows us that the fundamental unity of God's people does not go back to their shared ethnicity. It goes to their shared worship. The fundamental unity of God's people is not that all the Israelites are part of the same people group. The fundamental unity is they worship the same God. Because Elijah is saying, it's not enough. You guys are divided. You're you're saying Baal. You're saying Yahweh. Uh, You guys happen to be right, by the way. Uh, We can't go limping back and forth between the two. Who we worship is the most fundamentally unifying thing about us. That's what they needed to be called Back to. That's the unity that was lost at the fall when we rebelled against God, and it's the unity which we will now see Christ came to restore. So we move now to the church, the church age. And in the church, we find, as I have in your notes, a united diversity, a diverse unity, however you want to put the adjective and the noun, but not a uniformity. Not a uniformity. So we'll, we'll start. 
uh, with looking here at how that plays out with ethnicity in the church. So look at Matthew 28 again. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, that's the Greek word, ethne, baptizing them in the name, we've talked about this, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is where the the floodgates of unity open up from. The unity that we will find in the New Testament flows from this. So first, notice again, all nations, this is the undoing of Babel. The nations spread across the earth in division, and Babel is being undone. Actually, better, Babel's not being undone. Babel's being redeemed. It's not being undone. It's being redeemed. This is the redeeming of Babel because the differences Babel created will not be done away with. They won't be done away with. Language and ethnicity will not cease to exist because all of a sudden the church exists. Instead, those differences become profoundly relativized. A greater unity is introduced. And the second thing, again, as I've already made note of, the name, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what people are being baptized into. If, if God's triune nature, as we said, is stamped onto creation, it is jackhammered onto redemption. It is jackhammered onto redemption. Redemption is where the division that ran rampant since the very beginning, since Genesis 3, meets its maker. This is where there is a higher unity. And from this commission, the peoples of the earth, the the various nations or ethnicities are brought into the family of God. So look at Acts chapter 2. This is where we see the redeeming of Babel, I think, most clearly. It says, actually not the most clear. There's a Revelation 7 we'll come to later, but this is a big one. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Babel was, at the end, we speak a different language, I can't understand you. Acts, Pentecost here, is we speak a different language and I can understand you. I can understand you. I know what you're saying. We are declaring the mighty works of God. God does not paper over differences to create unity. He introduces a higher unity. He unites across these differences. It's a unity, but not a uniformity. It's the same with men and women in the church. So the differences aren't eliminated. They are redeemed. So according to Ephesians 5, godly husbands are called to self-sacrificial, laying down their lives, loving their wife as Christ loved the church. I always say, uh, when, I've, when I've done a wedding, I say to the groom, oh, yeah, I say this in counseling and I have said it in a wedding, you are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. If you have not died for her yet, there's still room for improvement. That is what godly husbands are called to. They do not rule over and dominate women as what was introduced with the fall in Genesis 3. Adam ruled over his wife. They love and they lead them in self-sacrificial ways. Likewise, godly, godly wives, unlike Eve, don't subvert their husband's leadership. They support and encourage him 
joyfully. The differences still exist. Men are still men. Women are still women. And they have unique roles in their relationship to each other, but the sinful division is redeemed. Paul talks about this all the time. I'll give you one example, Colossians chapter 3. He says, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. I think I meant to put the Galatians passage where he says there's neither male or female. So that's my mistake. But it's there in your cross-reference, right? Um, But, yeah, Paul's not saying differences don't exist. These differences do exist, right? Like with ethnicity, he's preaching to Jews first. He says, I go to the Jews first and then I go to the Gentiles because that reflects the historical ancestral priority of redemption. But he also is saying... There are unique roles for men and women in the church and in the home. They're not the same. The differences are not removed, but the sinful division is. So we started uh, this morning with a lengthy Ephesians 3 passage. Here we come to the passage right before it, which I think will give us the, the firm answer to our question. What are the angels and the demons amazed at? So look here at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, Therefore remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, division, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So there's a vertical and a horizontal separation. Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Remember, they're estranged, they're alienated. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Why are angels and demons amazed when they look at the church? They shout, God is wise, because they see the division he created, which on an earthly basis was a result of human sin. The division he created gives way to a diversity that creates a more beautiful unity. It doesn't make sense for Jews and Gentiles to be together. How in the world could that ever happen? Angels and demons are like, I don't understand. Those people are supposed to hate each other. They're supposed to be separated. They're supposed to be enemies. And they're in one church? This is amazing. God is so wise. That is the power of the gospel. Those who have been divided for literally millennia are one. And don't take off your your Trinitarian glasses when you read this passage. I've I've bolded it for you. You see the work of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit all across this 
passage all across, across redemption. The, the triune nature of God is jackhammered into redemption. Because it reflects his beautiful, diverse unity inherent in his own being. But here's the, the two questions that we need to ask. How and why? How and why? Here's the how. As we saw with Elijah, right, 1 Kings 18, the, the unity of worship is the most fundamental unity two different people could ever share. And that is what Christ has purchased. Christ has purchased that unity. He has united us, Jew, Gentile, whatever ethnicity, whatever male, female, whatever, back to God. He's dealt with the original problem of division that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3 between creator and creation and therefore united us to one another. The cross is vertical and then horizontal. That's how God made two into one. That's the how, and here's the why. Why did God do this? I've said it reflects his own nature, which is true, but it also bears witness to the world of the power of his gospel. Our unity shouts out something supernatural has taken place. Something amazing has happened. When, when two people who have no earthly business being together, Jew and Gentile is the example here in Ephesians, it testifies to the world a supernatural work has been done. John 17, again, he says this very clearly. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. Why does the unity of the church matter? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. In J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you knew this was coming, Five different groups are represented in the fellowship, right? You've got a couple men, you've got a dwarf, you've got an elf, you've got a wizard, you've got hobbits. And that testifies to the fact that the task in front of them is worth laying aside their differences. Of course, you know, Legolas and Gimli have this cute little back and forth because they're supposed to hate each other, right? But they're united, and of course, at the end, they're best friends. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Because it's saying that what we're facing, the evil we're against... Is, it relativizes our differences. It introduces a commonality that, it, that otherwise doesn't exist. In the church, we're not just united by a common enemy. We're united by a common king. And our unity testifies to who he is and what he's done. Because we do not belong together, and yet in the gospel, here we are. So... Uh, there are other differences. I've, I've focused on ethnicity and gender, but there are other differences that matter, that exist, uh, that we have unity across. So we could talk about uh, differences of, of wealth, of, of age, of, of gifting, of interest. There's a million things that could cause division in our world, and all of that division dies with the gospel. There is a higher unity. So uh, in, in their book, Compelling Community, which I have in your notes, probably of all the ones you could read to think about this theme, probably the best one I could recommend. Uh, Mark Dever, Jamie Dunlap point out that it's not impressive to the world when Christians are united around something that the world already unites around. Does that make sense? When, when uh, I'm always going to get along with my fellow Chicago Bears fans. I mean a Bears fan, I could be... I could be in Pakistan. If I meet a Bears fan, we're hanging out. It would be awesome, right? I would love that. 
We're going to be friends no matter what, but that's not particularly compelling to the world because there's an earthly explanation. Like, yeah, people like the bears. They're united. Okay. When homeschool moms are together, it's not surprising. They're going to gravitate towards each other. That's natural. They're going to like each other. Star Wars nerds, they're going to find each other and be friends. That's not surprising. We're not amazed at that. People from, different ethnic, or sorry, from the same ethnicity will naturally congregate together. That's not, that's not surprising. There's an earthly explanation for all of these things. But if a, a Bears fan, a homeschool mom, and a Star Wars nerd with different cultural backgrounds, maybe different ethnicities, come together in one church, sing the same songs, sit under the same preaching, take the same Lord's Supper together, there's no earthly explanation for that. That doesn't make any sense to our world. And therefore, it exalts the glory of our God and his gospel. It is a witness to the world of the unity that we share. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We are many, and yet we are one. That's what Christ has done. But notice one other thing we must say here. All this unity within the church necessarily means division from those outside the church. There's a division that exists between the church, Christ's people, and the not church, people who are not Christ's people. If the fundamental unity we share is a unity of worship, people who do not worship the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, the risen Lord we celebrate today, we do not share the most fundamental unity with them, and we are divided. Think of the, the language the New Testament uses so frequently to talk about the church, about Christians. It's the language of, of brothers and sisters. We are a family. We are united. But that also means there are those outside of the family, people who are not family members, who we're not united to. So we can't say, hey, hey, world, we're all brothers and sisters. Can't we all get along? That's not true. The Bible never says that. The Bible never says we all have this fundamental unity. We're brothers and sisters. Therefore, be united. It's not true of the world. The, the closest you could get would be Acts 17, where Paul's preaching uh, in Athens, and he says, he quotes one of the Greek philosophers who, who talks about we're all God's offspring. But that's the only place the Bible uses anything like family language to describe all the peoples of the earth. Paul's point is that we're all created by God, but that is not the basis for our unity. The basis for our unity is that we were redeemed by Christ. So, for example, when Paul addresses a case of godless immorality in the church in Corinth, he commands them to divide. 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, they're saying they're a Christian, they're saying they belong, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, never, not even to eat with such a one, he says, purge the evil person from among you. If they're saying, I'm a brother, I belong, I'm a member of the family, and their life is a complete rejection of that confession. They've been confronted about an obvious sin and they're saying, I don't want to repent of that. The Bible says divide. You are not United at the most foundational level. Is that painful? Yeah. 
It could be a friend. It could be an earthly family member, but you are not united on the most foundational level. And that's, of course, what Jesus said would happen. I won't read our passage for you for the, in the interest of time, but Matthew 10 talks about the division that Jesus said would come when he came. To be united to Jesus means to be unimaginably united in profound ways to his people and yet also fundamentally divided from those who are not his people. We could say more about that. Uh, we'll, we'll move along here in the interest of time. I don't know if we'll have time for questions. I want to I want to make sure we make a few points of application at the end here. So uh, the final end of all of this is the last day, which is both the perfection of unity and the perfection of division. It's where everything reached its full and final accomplishment that Christ has purchased. We are now, in a real but spiritual sense, united to God through Christ, but then we'll be fully and finally united to God forever, face to face. Revelation 21 He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We will be with our God. The the division that was introduced between creator and creation in the very beginning will be remedied, will be dealt with fully and finally. And that also means union horizontally with God's people. Look at Revelation chapter 7. I think this is such a cool passage. It says, After this I, it's John, looked And behold, a great multitude no one could number from every tribe, sorry, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So they all are still different. They still have their own distinctions. Ethnicity and language still exist. But they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. They have different languages and they sing with one voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the most powerful unity we could ever see, and it will come in full one day. But this is also a sobering reality here that division, division will also be perfected on the last day. Unity will be perfected, will be fully united with those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, and will be fully divided from those who are apart from Christ. Matthew 25 just assumes this. It says these, the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's no undoing that divide. It's eternal. It is perfect. So in the end, both perfect unity and perfect division exist. It's a sobering reality, but it's a biblical one. Let's look now at a few applications to close our time here together. The first is this, that united diversity is a product of the gospel. It is not the content of the gospel. It's a product. It's what happens as a result, but it is not the content. I think this is where a lot of the the diversity talk today goes wrong. Because if we put our hope in lesser things, in earthly unity, Anything less than the gospel to resolve the major divisions that exist in the world, it will fail. It cannot unite. We, we should grieve disunity. We should, we should be sad. We should, it's, it's rooted in sin. When you see uh, yeah, ethnic divisions in the world, you should hate them. They're evil. 
But no gospel-free solution will ultimately resolve those divisions. We cannot manufacture diversity apart from the gospel. We can repaint the leaves, but if the problem goes down to the roots, we haven't actually changed anything. And angels, think about this. Angels praise the the unity that exists in the church because there's no earthly explanation. If we introduce an earthly explanation, it robs God of his glory. Uh, I don't know if any of you know the the story behind the song Amazing Grace. I'm sure all of you know the song. But Amazing Grace, I think, is one of the greatest testimonies to union across various ethnicities. The story of the song, I think, is very, very beautiful. It was written by a man named John Newton. And before he became a Christian, John Newton was the captain of a slave ship. Ferried slaves from Africa into slavery. That's what he was doing. And many believe that Newton got the melody for Amazing Grace from the songs he would hear the slaves sing on the slave ship. Because it sounds very much like a West African sorrow chant. Musical people who know about these things, not me, have, have talked about this and they're very convinced it is, he, he, he put his words to a slave melody. And so if you actually, if you see it printed correctly, like in the Library of Congress, it'll say, words John Newton, melody unknown. The creation of that song testifies that slave or free, black or white, all are one in Christ Jesus. And that is beautiful. That is amazing. But don't get it backwards. The unity exists because of the gospel. It is a product It is not the good news. The good news is the amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the gospel that unites. Second application, unity is both something we work toward and something that already exists. It's something we work toward and that already exists. So, Jesus commands unity. It's all over the New Testament. I could have literally put 20 Bible verses where Jesus says, do this, be unified. But do not forget, we strive for that unity because it already exists. Because Christ has already made it a reality. We are in Christ united. I won't read. We got four minutes. I won't read the whole Philippians 2, but it's talking about unity. And he says, verse 5, Have this mind, therefore pursue unity, so pursue unity among yourselves, which is yours. So have this mind, which is yours. So, so strive for this reality, which already exists. It, is, uh, it has been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are united, so act like it. Third, finally, Unity is so important that it is worth awkwardness, but truth is so important it is worth division. What do I mean by that? Unity is so important it's worth awkwardness, but truth is so important it's worth division. I won't read this whole Galatians passage for you, but basically what's going on is Peter has been eating with the Gentiles in Galatia. Then the Judaizers, his Jewish buddies, roll into town, and he's like, this is awkward. I feel weird. I, I probably should eat with them. They might think weird things about me. I, I don't want, I want them to think I'm united with these Gentiles. It's kind of embarrassing. So he stops eating with the Gentiles. He feels this awkwardness as a product of their unity. 
But Paul comes to Galatia and he opposes Peter to his face because, verse 4, his conduct was not in step with the unity of the gospel. Sorry, with the truth of the gospel. His conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. If you want to know what is worth dividing over, ask, because it could be theology, it could be theological realities, it could be conduct, like 1 Corinthians 5. Ask, is this in step with the truth of the gospel? Does it deny the gospel? Because what Peter's actions were saying, it seems silly, right? He's sharing a meal with with the Gentiles in Galatia, and then he doesn't. What's the big deal? It's a really big deal because he's saying we are not unified. I'm not going to eat with them anymore because it's awkward and it's embarrassing. We're not, I'm, I'm saying with my actions, we are not one. And Paul is saying the gospel says you are one. So act like it. Truth is worth dividing over. Paul was willing to say, Peter, We cannot be together if you will not act like the truth of the gospel exists in your own life. We don't downplay our strongest convictions for the sake of unity. We upplay them because they are the basis of our unity. The solution to this unity is not a moral relativism or a bypassing of differences. It is finding a more basic, fundamental unity, a union of who we love, of who we Worship. And never, of course, never be a factionalist for factionalism's sake. Division in itself is not a good thing. If you must divide, though, make sure you're on the side of truth and divide with a soft heart. Truth and love must go together. Instead of that, follow what Paul commands in Philippians 4 agree in the Lord. So in Philippians 4, is these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. If you're looking for a baby name, pick one, Yodi and Syneke. They're fighting about something. We don't know what they're fighting about. Paul never tells us. They're fighting about something, and Paul commands them, agree in the Lord. He does not say, hey, Yodi is right, Syneke's wrong. So, come on, Syneke, listen to Yodia. however you say that name, probably doing it wrong. He doesn't say, you're right, she's wrong. Or that they're both wrong, or they're both right. It doesn't matter, because whatever the issue is, they're not agreeing in the Lord. That's what they must pursue. The bigger unity that unites them. And brothers and sisters, that should also unite us. We should have a profound humility when we have discussions with our brothers and sisters. We might have disagreements, but let's recognize first, we must agree in the Lord. We must agree in the Lord. We must say to one another, I, I don't agree with you about, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. Million different things we could, people like to divide over today. But we must first say, we agree in the Lord. That we will never let go of. Show your deeper unity by talking about your differences in such a way that makes no sense to the world around us and that testifies to the fact that God has made you both one in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and you have purchased our unity here as the Parkway Church and we pray we pray we would live it out. We pray that we as a church would be so characterized by love and humility that people would look and say, "Wow, their God is wise. He is powerful and he is good." Do that we pray in Christ's name. Amen.